you provide these gifts to the mountain deities for the good of their prosperity, for the well-being, let's say, of the mountain deities. Show them respect and wish them well, then they will return you favors. There's a mutual contract between humans and these spirits is that, okay, we show you respect, we provide you gifts, and these gifts will help you prosper and stay healthy, and then you will return us favors. But this is the problem with climate change. These mountains are not prospering. I mean, they're not doing better, quite on the contrary. They're losing their, as they say in the end, is they're losing their poncho. The ice is melting, which is seen as a sign that the mountain deities are not doing well. Something is wrong. The whole contract doesn't work. We provide you more gifts, but you're worse off. It should be the other way around. There's something wrong, utterly wrong. Welcome to Skaz Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Karsten Perigard, Professor Emeritus of Social Anthropology at the University of Gothenburg. Karsten Perigard was Fellow at the Collegium in the academic year of 2020-2021. His research spans mostly across three themes – culture and rituals, migration and identity, and climate change and water management, and the multiple ways in which these intersect. He has spent eight years conducting field research in Peru, where he is honorary doctor at the National University of the Center of Peru. In this episode, we take a closer look at his research about climate change and water management in Peru. And this is the first episode within our theme, Latin America. Very welcome to Scus Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? As you pointed out, I'm trained as an anthropologist and I worked as an anthropologist my entire professional life. I've uh, worked in Denmark. I'm a Danish national myself. So I worked at the University of Copenhagen for a number of years. I was an associate professor there in anthropology. But since 2012, I've worked in Sweden at the University of Gothenburg as a professor of social anthropology. And today I'm a professor emeritus at Gothenburg University. Very nice to have you here with us, even though we're on a distant call. But in a way, you're back at SCAS for a little while. So as I said, in this episode, we will talk about some of your research in Latin America and focus on climate change and water management in Peru. How come you became interested in this subject to start with? I worked in Latin America for, well, my entire research career. I actually started out as a student, as a freshman, traveling in East Africa. I studied Swahili and I thought I would become an Africanist. As a student, later as a student, I traveled as a backpacker in the mid-70s in Latin America. And I ended up in Peru. And after I graduated and uh, became a researcher, I uh, went back to Peru and I've worked there ever since. So I did my first field research there in 83, so it's almost 40 years ago. I personally love to live in the mountains. So the Andes just has a certain appeal to me, and uh, I got more and more intrigued by Andean culture. Uh, so I started out studying land reform and 
political movements and uh, peasant organizations in the Andes. And then later I became interested in ecology and more conventional anthropological themes and questions such as culture and rituals and particularly the relationship between ecology and, and rituals. So I continued doing field research in the, in the 80s and the 90s. And then I became interested in migration. I started out studying rural urban migration in Peru. Well, that was my first book in English. And then I extended this research topic in the late 90s and early zeros. I uh, started to study uh, international migration, what is today known as transnational migration. So I followed Peruvians all over the world. And I've been in a number of cities in the US and North America, in Spain, Italy, uh, Japan. I've been there three times studying Peruvian migrants. I've been in Argentina, Chile. So I've been in most places where Peruvians go. So I'm kind of a, the follower of Peruvian migration. Then about 10 years ago, I changed a research topic again, then becoming interested in climate change. And uh, I returned to the mountains where I started out. And this is where I've uh, conducted research the uh, past 12 years, actually. As you pointed out, climate change and water scarcity. I feel very confident and very well about having returned to the mountains after having traveled most of the world. So the intersection between migration and climate change is really at the heart of my research interest today. One of the sustainable development goals, goals number six, is to ensure access to water and um, sanitation for all. So we're talking about water today. And you are specifically interested in the consequences of climate change for the supply of fresh water, as you already pointed out. Can you tell us a little bit more? How does this look like in Peru? Peru houses more than 70% of the world's tropical glaciers. And here I'm all, all, only talking about tropical glaciers, which obviously are a few. If you look at it at a, a larger scale, uh, let's say from the planet's point of view, where most glaciers are located in, of course, in the Arctic areas and, and also Himalaya partly. But Peru... The Andes has a number of glaciers, and most of them are in Peru. And due to climate change, these are melting in an alarming pace. I wasn't really aware of that until like 15 years ago. I remember a colleague of mine pointed out to me, what's going to happen if, if the ice disappears? If you travel in the, uh, in the Andes, and I've worked there so many years, there are always a couple of mountain peaks around that are white. They are disappearing. Of course, a few of them remain, but some of the major glaciers have lost already more than, some of them more than 30% of their ice caps. So this is really dramatic. And if you look at pictures, I had colleagues from the natural sciences who I also traveled in Nepal. I've attended meetings there about the melting glaciers. And I've seen photos where some of my colleagues were there have taken recently photos exactly on the same spot both in Peru, but as I mentioned, also Himalaya in Nepal, of glaciers. And then they compare them to old photos, photos taken in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and later. And they take them at exactly the same spot. When you observe how the glaciers have retreated, it's dramatic and it's sad. That has really triggered my interest in, in water. Water, of course, is a, 
wonderful topic to, to study anyway, because water has so many qualities that impact social life. It's existential. Water is, is just everywhere. We wouldn't be anywhere if, or anything if we didn't have water. So water, for any scholar, is a wonderful topic. But then water, because it has this existential meaning for us as humans, and then in the light of climate change, it really becomes kind of a, a lens to understand so many other things particularly how people perceive climate change and how they respond. And in Peru, as I pointed out, the glaciers are melting, and these are the principal freshwater deposits for Andean people. This is where they get their, you know, their water. The meltwater from the glaciers are their main source of water. So when they melt and the water sometimes comes too much, because melting means sometimes it's flooding, this is part of the problem with water. Either there's too much or too, or too little. Then people become aware that something is wrong. And this is what I study in Peru, is people's awareness of climate change by observing how water becomes... It's always been a scarce resource, but now becoming the water sources is just acute. It's urgent. So it's both cultural, it's an existential Many social conflicts are generated by water shortages. And it's a political question. So you can study all sorts of aspects of social life through the lens of water. Yes. And you're looking especially at the impact on the culture and on, on these kind of things. Can you just give us a brief glance? What have you found there? My main focus has been on Andean people's climate perception. What I call climate perception is how they perceive climate change. And this is obviously shaped by their cultural background. And here comes water in. Since I did my first field research in the early 80s, and long before, well, not long before, but before we really talked about climate change. In those days, scholars, we would talk about ecology, environment, but climate itself, we didn't focus so much on, on climate and climate change itself. But there was always environmental change and environmental problems and conflicts and water was always an issue. I've studied irrigation, and this is a region that has always suffered from water scarcity. So somehow it's not new, but it's just so much more urgent today. So one of the themes that fascinated me, even back in the 80s, was irrigation, how people manage water, water management, you could call it. That is how they take water from the glaciers, how they direct it into and construct canals, channels, reservoirs, and spend a lot of time and energy on managing the water. How do you get water to your fields? This is the basic question. If you look at the top of the mountains, the glaciers, the ice is up there, how do you get that melt water down to your field? So water management is a critical, essential aspect of Andean society. So I've always been fascinated by how you manage water. And water management is often associated with not just the practical question about managing water, but also ideas about water. And water is conceived in Andean villages as a living thing. Water is not just a chemical or material substance. It's perceived as something living. You engage with water. There are a number of ways in Quechua, which is the native language of Andean people, about talking about how you teach water, how you work with water, how you play with water. And this is because they conceive water as living. The mountains are also attributed these qualities as somebody who's, who's alive. 
So you gotta engage, you have to engage with your surroundings, with water, mountains, but also the earth, Pachamama. Water holes are thought of as, uh, often you don't just get water straight from the mountains, from the, the ice caps. There are also these water springs, the water comes out from different places of the mountain. And these are, in Spanish, people would say, ojo, these are eyes. So they also thought of something living, that there's something living in behind, inside the mountains. And you have to engage with these spirits in order to ask for the water. So you have offerings. And this is one of the topics I focus my research on, offerings. How do you conduct offerings to these reigns of, of different kind of spirits and living you know, creatures or whatever you would call them? So people uh, believe that the, the landscape is inhabited by these spiritual beings and you have to make offerings to them. This is the way you communicate with them and ask them for favors and hope that they will provide you more water. Yes. And just as you said, um, mountains, water, the environment is something living. And each year there's a celebration for the Andean New Year on the mountain Yatapayama. Is that correct? Waitabayana. Yes, thank you. And there the pilgrims go up to the mountain to carry out different rituals, which you were just starting to tell us about. You have been up there a couple of times, and a few years ago, the freelance filmmaker Bill Gentile followed you to make a documentary about the Andean New Year celebration, and we can just listen to a little clip what it sounds like when you're up there. El Señor siempre nos va a bendecir a todos, en la salud, en todo, en el trabajo, en todo nos va a ayudar. Yo sé que esto va a ser para un bien para todos nosotros. Gracias, It reminds me of my days in Peru. I feel at home. <laughs> yes, I imagine. So we heard somebody talking and music. Can you take us up to the mountain? What is happening there? Yeah, the mountain is, as I told you, called Waita Paliana. Waita in Quechua means flower. So Waita Paliana is where you pick the flower. It's one of the main mountains in Peru's central highlands where I started out my actual research in the early 80s, close to a city called Huancayo. This is where I'm actually honorary doctor, and I have many good colleagues there. So I've been returning to this area uh, many times, and I started eight years ago joining or participating and uh, observing how a pilgrimage that started about 30 years ago to the mountain by a group of, uh, well, of local people, particularly uh, the shaman that I have known now for a number of years. So he organizes this pilgrimage on the 21st of June, and it is perceived as the Andean New Year. You have to remember we are on the southern part of, of the planet here. Their New Year is the 21st of June. So here, a group of pilgrimage guided or directed by this shaman and, and some other shamans too, actually, yeah. They drive up in cars, actually, and then they walk the last part up to uh, the foot of the glacier, at the glacier lake. And then they uh, make these offerings to uh, White Paliana. And as we heard here in the very short cut from the film, from the video, in Spanish they explain what makes them make these offerings. So they believe that by making offerings to the mountain, to the mountain deity, White Paliana, they 
provide the mountain with uh, gifts. The mountain will return them with favors. They even believe that they can specify some of the favors they want. So they bring small toys. They can bring other stuff. They can even make prints from the internet of advertisements for things they desire. Some of them are tradesmen or tradewomen, so they're into commerce and they have trucks or businesses. So maybe they need a new truck. They go looking for the truck they want and then they print a page from an advertisement and then they bring it to the mountain. So they, they're very specific, they're very concrete in uh, this is what we need. The same thing with the house or you know other things. Some of them ask for prosperity in their personal life. Maybe they want a child, so they can ask, you know, for fertility or the mountain to help them, you know, get a new offspring. Some of them actually do other things too. I've seen cases and heard of it that people uh, who want to do harm <laughs> to other people, what you could call brujería, uh, as we say in Spanish, you know, witch doctory. Uh, it's sometimes mixed, but basically it is to ask the mountain for favors in return for your offering gift. So this is the basic idea, that you go there to engage in this relationship of exchange, of you could say, uh, you know, I provide you a gift, and that allows me to, to ask you for a favor. But it's also, it's conducted in a spirit of respect. You could, some would say, a religious spirit. I don't use the term religion itself. Well, you could say that, but I'm, it's more belief. You believe in something that is more than human. Mountain deities are important powers. If you live in a mountain range, and this is the same in the Himalayas. Not that I've conducted research there, but I have told you I have colleagues, I've attended meetings there. In most mountain areas, people do have a strong belief in, in mountains and, and sometimes glaciers too, that they have these extra human powers. But they're also dangerous if you don't conduct some of these rituals. If you neglect to provide them favors, they can do harm to you. It's a tricky relationship. So you have to deal with these mountain deities in a, in a very careful way. And most of all, show them respect and say, I wouldn't call them prayers, but when they provide these gifts, and I've attended many meetings, not just in, in Wankayo, this area, but also in the communities where I worked, you always do it in a very respectful way. You conduct certain rituals, you burn, offering gifts. Sometimes people just, like on this mountain here, White Baliana, sometimes people just leave them on the ground. But in other places, people would burn them. Sometimes you consume them by drinking or eating something, but you often burn them. So there's a process of how you convert these objects into a gift. So there's a whole procedure, and this is what you could call culture. This is how... These offerings become part of a wider culture of, uh, I wouldn't say adoring, but living with these mountain deities, as well as other spirits. As I pointed out, the Pachamama, Mother Earth, and these water springs where people believe that their ancestors are still living in there. You have to provide them offering gifts too. So this is what goes on in this video. Yes, it looks very fascinating. And also a lot of people are going up to that mountain. It's been growing in numbers, and this is where climate change comes in. And this is really where the topic that I'm most intrigued by in my research at this point, and I've been at this for a number of years, is 
how climate change reshapes and in people's belief and trust in these mountain deities. And this becomes evident in this video, which I thought was interesting really to get to the foreground to highlight is that you provide these gifts to the mountain deities for the good of their prosperity, for the well-being, let's say, of the mountain deities. Show them respect and wish them well, then they will return you favors. There's a mutual contract between humans and these spirits is that, okay, we show you respect, we provide you gifts, and these gifts will help you prosper and stay healthy, and then you will return us favors. But this is the problem with climate change. These mountains are not prospering. I mean, they're not doing better, quite on the contrary. They're losing their, as they say in the end, is they're losing their poncho. The ice is melting, which is seen as a sign that the mountain deities are not doing well. Something is wrong. The whole contract doesn't work. We provide you more gifts, but you're worse off. It should be the other way around. There's something wrong, utterly wrong. I've attended this pilgrimage actually three times, and I've seen how this idea has escalated, that people start questioning more and more, you know, what are we doing wrong? So there are many answers. Some say, well, we have to give more gifts. It's because we are not respectful enough. But then others uh, would argue, well, maybe there's something wrong with the gift. And here comes another issue in which is that in the last 30 years, more and more people go to the mountain, not just on the 21st of June, actually it's become a business. And people go there on a daily basis almost. People contract their own shamans privately. The number of shamans have just skyrocketed in the Wankaya area. There are dozens of them. Some say hundreds. You even hardly know who's a shaman or not. It's a business. So you hire a shaman and go up there and make your offering. And then you ask for these favors, all kinds of favors. So there's an, an inflation of the offerings are suffering what you could call inflation in terms of that too many people are making too many offerings, asking for too many favors. And meanwhile, the glaciers are melting. And then comes the problem that the offering gifts themselves are material objects. And people leave many of them on the ground. Sometimes they burn them, but they leave the material objects of these offering gifts on the ground. And there's another name for that, which is contamination, pollution. And so the regional government has actually has tightened its control of assets of, you know, people allowed to go on the mountains because they say they collect tons of garbage on the mountain every year. And when I say garbage, I don't like that word, actually, but let's say leftovers. But some of it is garbage because not just the leftovers from the offering gifts. People go there and having a party because it is, it's a ritual where people go there, have their offerings, but they also eat food and they drink and they dance and we heard the music. So it's not just a, let's say, religious event. It's a social event. Whole families go there to ask for favors. And then they leave whatever they take, you know, plastic plates and cups. And I've seen on the ground, you know, all over. It's not just the 21st of June. There's a big fiesta in July, Santiago, which is the patron saint of animals. And many people go there to celebrate the mountain on the 27th of July to celebrate Santiago. And now there's tourism too. So they have tourist guides, take tourists up there. 
they don't contaminate that much, but still the mountain is suffering, simply suffering because of too many humans crowding on the mountain and many of them exactly conducting these offerings that are supposed to be for the good of the mountain, but anybody can see this is wrong. And people are becoming more and more aware of that. And I find this is where culture becomes not part of the solution, but part of the problem. And I think that is interesting. How do you fix culture when culture no longer is your guiding line to a healthy or sustainable relationship with the environment, but when culture actually becomes part of the problem? How do you self-fix your own culture? How do you adjust it? And this is why you could see in this video, people are starting to asking questions. What is wrong? What are we doing wrong? And people are becoming more and more aware of not leaving garbage on the ground. And they are actually articulating this in their rhetoric about the mountain. They're saying, well, when we behave bad, the mountain suffers. So we have to adjust our behavior so the mountain doesn't suffer. We are not here to do harm to the mountain. We are here to do good. And there's a change there in consciousness of the relationship between humans and mountains. Well, mountains used to be the superpower and humans as their, the servants. And people are becoming more and more aware that we as humans have much more power than we have so far thought of. Actually, we're even more powerful than the mountain, you could say. It's the mountain that is suffering from our acts and not the other way around. It used to be that you would fear the mountain. Uh, it's the mountain who's the powerful. No, people are becoming more and more aware that we as humans have much more power we're doing harm, even to the mountain. Some people even say that the mountains are dying. They're going to die. They're going to go away. And then becomes, of course, the big question, if the mountains die, what about the deities? You know, who's in charge here? And this is still a very open question. And this is what I think is most interesting about studying climate change is that, and is this not just in the Andes, is anywhere in the world, who are we as humans when we realize that we are the steward of the planets. We had the power. We've misused it so far, but what are we going to do? My study of the Andes is actually uh, just a small case of when people realize that this is the brave new world. How can you do it then when, when people realize that we're doing something wrong, the thing that we think is doing something good, bringing the mountain offerings and gifts? Maybe this is not the way... How do you change uh, people's practices then to adapt to the change in environment? That's a major question. On one scale, people adapt, you could say, all the time. There's always a challenge of adapting uh, the environment. Just to mention, water is always scarce, has always been scarce in, in the Andes. And you never know when the rain falls, when it doesn't. Uh, there are years, and since I've started to work 40 years ago, there are years where the rain just fails. You need a plan B or sometimes a plan C, and it can go terribly wrong. And when I interview people about climate and climate perceptions, often people tell me stories about, well, this is not that new. We've seen it before. One of the challenges working with climate change uh, adaptation in places like the Andes is that you could even argue that Andean people are climate skeptics. You know, from the point of view of the Western world, we have a division here about climate change. We either believe that it's true and it's generated by, or caused by humans, 
and some stubbornly uh, argue, no, this is a natural thing. Some even argue that it doesn't occur. But most people today would agree we have a problem with the climate. But some would say, well, but it's not humans. It's natural. It's going on all the time. Some people tend to uh, agree with that. They recall how their grandparents told them stories about, you know, droughts, which is true. These are occurrences that have happened before. The problem with climate change is that it's becoming, the pattern is much more uh, predictable almost. So climate change is not just business as usual. As I told you about the glaciers, I visited the Bird Polar Center in Ohio State University with some very distinguished climate scholars that had visited uh, this center. And uh, Donnie Thompson, one of the most distinguished scholars there, a glaciologist, he's studied glaciers all over the world. He's drilling glaciers. He's been drilling glaciers all over the world and, and tried to recover or to reconstruct the glacier's history. And he's worked many years in Peru. Fantastic person to talk with. And when you really get involved in climate change, hard science, climate change research, There is no doubt Uh, these glaciers are disappearing. And I think people in the Andes are becoming aware that this is a different business. But it's still, there's still somewhere in between. Is this what have you seen before? Is it new? So the climate perception, they're divided. Some can see there's something new going on. Others insist that not. Climate change actually divides people. It divides people. It creates conflicts. And then coming back to the question you asked uh, about how they adapt to climate change. Well, of course, people adapt practically, you know, these people are agriculturalists. So, uh, so they live by farming, they're farmers. So they have to adapt. Otherwise, they, they don't survive. So people adapt. They've always done that because the climate has never been stable. But as more and more people become aware that something is wrong here, they start you know, trying to reinvent the whole, for instance, water management. I've known people, not just young people, people of my age who, who really have figured out we got we have to rethink water management from the very start of the basic because we'll have less water. This problem is not going to be fixed. This is permanent. And we have to change crops. And it's not just water that is becoming scarce. Temperatures are rising, which means that some crops, they don't work anymore. You have to uh, find new crops. And we're talking microclimates here. You know, we're talking mountains. So within a, a scale of a 100 meters, you can really see how you've got to find another crop. You have to adapt all the time, and it's speeding up. So some people are trying to adapt here. Others don't. They stick to the old routines. So climate change is dividing people and creating conflicts. And when it comes to perception, some people, and I've heard some people saying, yes, you're right, climate change is real. A few agree with me because I'm, as a Westerner, I tell my stories about what I think about climate change. You know, I say, well, it's uh, generated by humans and particularly us up in the West, in Europe and in America and in the modern world, people have known for, you know, decades who would say, That's not true. It's not you. They even blame themselves. This is one of the big problems is that they don't see climate change as a global phenomenon. They have started to think because they, in the past 20, 30 years, the Andes, Peru has been modernized in many ways. 
And modernity has arrived even to the last corners, the most remote corners in the Andes. So they have roads, they have cars, they have modern facilities, they have electricity. So people have started to blame themselves. It's our modern lifestyle. We are the ones who contaminate. We are the ones who are causing our own problems. So how do you help people whose climate perception is that it's not a global phenomenon, it's a local, it's, it's ourselves? And I'll tell you, their CO2 emissions are, you know, minimal compared to, let's say, us up here in Sweden and in Northern Europe. But if you blame yourself, what is your strategy? So this is one of the things you have to work with there. Provide them more input. How do you identify yourself as a planetary agent in this global world of climate change? And how do you adjust your own climate perception so you, well, don't point at yourself? We should up in the north, but in the south, they should point at us, but they they rarely do. So the whole, it's not just about, you know, when I talked about the offerings and the procedures and the cultural framework within which people conduct these offerings and how they adapt to climate change. My argument there would be that culture is not always, I think culture can be part of the solution, but culture is not always part of, often it is part of the problem. So you have to fix your own culture. Even people in the Andes have to do something about their culture. But it's also a question about awareness, of global awareness. How do you provide people here with an input that can make them, you know, reconsider their worldview and their own position as what I would call planetary agents? And I think they're, they're deeply involved in this process, but there's a long way to go. thinking about culture and how you change your culture and become a planetary agent, I mean, we have the same problem in the Western world, right? I mean, we have a certain culture of having multiple cars or flying for vacations and, and leading a certain lifestyle. And it seems to be very hard to change, especially for some people. And even more so if you don't believe in that climate change is man-made. So... Can you transfer some of your research and experiences from Peru and Latin America to the rest of the world, so to say? Well, as an anthropologist, well, we study culture, or at least this is a, the nitty-gritty of our, of our research. And anthropologists have contributed to this many years, a celebration of culture, as a, particularly when culture is, let's say, people in the end is indigenous culture, or some culture is, let's say, more authentic than other cultures in our perception of the world. Uh, we even think of ourselves as we don't even have culture. Culture is something people have other places. We don't have culture. We're just living our own lives, uh, practical lives. But as you <laughs> very well mentioned there, we have lots of culture. We have a very, a very strong material culture. We have cars, we travel. That's all culture. And that is perhaps what defines culture. It's something, it's like a There was a famous anthropologist saying, culture is the spider web of a spider. You spin it yourself and then you crawl into it and then you can't see it because it's your entire world. <laughs> you don't recognize, you don't think of culture as your own, I wouldn't say prison, but your own spider web. You kind of get out of it. As an anthropologist, you have the opportunity of traveling and seeing culture from other perspectives. Then you become also aware of your own culture. This is, I think, important. 
essential to anthropology that you have to go somewhere you have to see other people's culture if you only look at think of your own culture you don't see it but then of course there's a paradox here because when i go to peru and become let's say part of that awareness process of becoming aware of your culture i'm part of the problem too because i travel <laughs> and this is my culture I have the privilege of being able to travel, and that means taking the plane to Peru, which is a terrible mess in terms of CO2 emissions. So I'm part of the problem. So what do I do down there? But then, you know, Peru is full of tourists, millions of tourists who travel. And the villages where I worked are actually very, they're tourists all over, and many young backpackers. And they talk about climate change too. And many of the people I've known for years now talk a lot with these tourists, and they're becoming more aware of climate change by debating with these tourists. But of course, then the tourists themselves are part of the problem because as me, as myself. So you cannot take a high position here <laughs> morally because whatever you try to do that, you find yourself in a double standard. At least it's a, you know, it's a process where I become more and more aware of who I am, what I'm doing. But I can also see that the solution is not me traveling to Peru to tell them, you know, about climate change. I'm a facilitator, and I still think that I can make a difference there by going there and engaging with people that I've known for so long that we can see each other from different perspectives. So it's, a, I would say, a shared, a collective learning process, which I engage in with these people because we're learning together. So I do feel that I can contribute in those terms, I don't pretend to know more than them. And I certainly don't see myself in any higher moral position, quite on the contrary. I see myself as part of the problem. There's still a lot of things to work with there. We all have to change our culture, I would put it that way. Culture is not just a neat, nice thing, a safe ground where we think now we have our own culture and people have their culture. And No, culture is actually one of the main sources behind climate change, certainly. Very interesting thoughts. I mean, we're all part of the problem, so at least you're trying to find solutions also. But I don't pretend to be any better than anybody else, and I may not have found the right solution. And I'm perfectly aware that many people would say, what are you doing when you travel out there? But staying home, I don't find that as a solution either. We need communication. We need engagement. We need to interact. We cannot just close ourselves down or more fence ourselves into our own culture. There is a tendency, I would say, in the world today is like, don't mess with others' culture, just stick to your own culture. I think we need more engagement. We need engagement across cultures more than ever. I hope I don't just do bad. I hope that whatever good I do somehow compensate for, for the damage I do to the planet when I travel. We've already touched upon this. I mean, some people believe that the solution to climate change is more or less technical. I mean, you can find new technical solutions that help you adverse the climate change consequences. As we've been talking now about culture for quite some time, probably the solution is a lot more complex, of course. So you as anthropologist, what can you bring to, to that discussion? What do we have to understand about ourselves and our cultures that plays into this big picture of climate change? Definitely uh, technical solutions. And I'm sure the people I work with in the Andes will embrace the idea of you know, technical solutions. And eventually, at the end of the day, technical solutions have always been the way we've progressed. 
I'm an optimist, and I think that technical solutions, I'm sure you've got a lot of smart guys out there reinventing uh, the world by technology. But then technology will always end up with technology also causing new problems. So it, it's biting yourself in the tail by you know thinking that they themselves will fix the problem. This is really, I think, a major mistake. And you hear that from politicians because then they don't have to take the hard decisions. If technology can fix the problem, well, we can just keep on conducting our lifestyle or our life as we've done so far. That is wrong. And I think anthropology can perhaps, I wouldn't say certainly not point to solutions, but we can create, a, if not a new awareness, then strengthen an existing awareness of a vulnerable relationship with the environment. Even if people in the Andes where I work don't really recognize global climate change as a global phenomenon and they haven't really perhaps grasped the consequences of this new brave world they're facing, I think they still, as I said, they would need much more input in order to grasp or to come to terms with that world which is waiting around the corner. But talking about culture, if culture will never go away because we are humans without culture, it doesn't make sense. You know, even technology is culture. And new technologies create new forms of culture. Cultures are habits that become unaware of things we do over and over again because we cannot think of all the things we do. So they simply become, you know, something we take for granted. And common sense, it's simply what we assume is the natural culture is when our habits, our practices and ways of doing things becomes what seems to be natural, not something you would even think of changing or reflecting upon. And technology is exactly that. So technology is deeply cultural in those terms. So culture rapidly becomes part of the problem because then we don't think of what we're doing. But culture can also play an active role here. And I see that going back to the offerings. Because if you look at what happens, what I've been studying the last decade or more now, is that by observing how these offerings, and this is just an example of how culture works. Culture is just another practice. It sounds very religious, very, you know, sublime, or but it's actually just a practice like any other forms of culture. If you look at that from that point of view, then it has become a window for ending people to become aware of their own role in climate change. Because by practicing offerings, they become aware that there's something wrong in that relationship of exchange, the gifts in terms of favors. It doesn't work. There's something wrong. So they start to become conscious of their own acts and start to respond to that. And I think here culture becomes a window on people's awareness or people's agency and then generating a form of awareness. So when culture no longer works the way you, you want it to work, then people somehow become aware of that spider web. They can't see the entire spider web, but they become aware that they're living in a, in a spider web. And that leads them to adapt, not just in practical terms, as I talked about, you know, changing crops and water management, but also uh, changing their routines, their cultural routines, their ritual. So the ritual itself, the culture, can become a thermostat, you could say, on their own agency. Because when they can see that the agency actually do more damage than or harm than good, then the culture does provide them with a framework to become aware of who they are. And I think this is something we can learn of, is that we as modern urban people up in the Northern Europe, 
we take walks in the forest, but our relationship with the environment is more, more or less lost. We hardly engage with the environment. We have very few words. We observe a bird, an animal out there, or, and then we are aware that the seasons now, hopefully spring, will soon be around, and we love hearing the birds singing, but we have absolutely no relationship with that environment. So sustainability, environmental sustainability, is something that uh, modern people don't have much of a sense there. They have many good intentions, but I think uh, the people I work with and the rituals, the offerings, do provide them with a framework of reflecting on sustainability. It is a thermostat on their own agency and its impact on the environment. And I think that is helpful to guide them to a better, you know, to adjust their own culture to a climate and environment that is changing rapidly to generate an awareness of, uh, of their own agency and the damage it is causing to the environment. We up here in the West, we, we don't have those cultural frameworks to work with, to become aware of who are we as a planetary agent. We kind of been alienated from nature, from environment, and we had to re-engage. And there, I think, at least and in people, I've learned a lot. Even though it seems very religious to engage in these offerings, I do it with pleasure because I feel, you know, I re-engage with the environment. I somehow become aware of who I am uh, on the planet. Yes, very interesting. should think more about that when we're out in the forest. Who are we uh, in relationship to whoever we meet out there? <laughs> Whether it's animals, plants, or stones, or, or rain, water, or... We have to re-engage somehow, and we have a long way to go up here in the West because we've forgotten a lot. I don't want to sound like a, I'm a too romantic. I'm not a tree hawker in those terms, although where I live, I have an old oak tree that is 700 years old. And when I pass it, I, uh, I often think of, boy, oh, this tree, it was there when Columbus went to America, and long before I went to America. And its roots down there in the planet, there's something going on there that I can't see, I can't sense. You're part of an interdisciplinary research project about climate change, which was funded by the Swedish Research Council. Interdisciplinarity is one of our favorite topics on this podcast, since we are in this environment of SCAS. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project? What are you going to do? It's, I would say, even radical interdisciplinary. I'm a professor emeritus at the School of Global Studies at Gothenburg University, as I pointed out, as I told you. So with a group of colleagues there, one from Peace and Development, another from Environmental Social Studies, And then myself as an anthropologist, we work together with two group of other scholars at Gothenburg University, but they are climatologists. So they are from the hard, you could say hard natural sciences. They work with climate models. So together with uh, a former colleague of us at the School of Global Studies in Gothenburg University, a geographer who now works at Oslo University, we, the six of us, will over six years conduct research in the Himalayas, in the Andes and Ethiopia, that is some of the major mountain areas in the world, and do research on what we call climate-generated migration. That is the way 
climate change causes or generates migration. What is unique about the project is that we will use a combined method of quantitative and qualitative data. That is, we will uh, use these climate models. Our colleagues from the natural sciences will apply climate models to observe climate change in the past years and the coming six years in uh, a selected number of areas in uh, Nepal and Peru, Bolivia and Ethiopia, and then observe climate change and how people respond in terms of migration in relation to the climate change that is going on. And then on the other hand, explore how people themselves account for climate change and migration. And the interdisciplinary challenge here is to how do you combine, how do you make climate models work together with soft methods uh, from the social sciences and the humanities on people's own narratives and climate perceptions and and how they account for their own uh, migratory uh, practices. We haven't started yet, but I think it will really lead to some not just path-breaking understandings, not only on climate change and migration, but also how uh, sciences from very, very different backgrounds can actually work together. Sounds very exciting. We will have to connect again in a couple of years, and you have to tell me more how it's going. So in the academic year of 2020-2021, you were a Global Horizons Fellow here at SGAS. Could you tell us more about your time here and your experience also of the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment that you find here? I was very happy to be a fellow at SGAS. I spent nine wonderful months while there was the coronavirus caused a lot of trouble and uh, prevented me from even being a SCAS for several months. And there were many social events that just didn't materialize. Nevertheless, I did really have some fantastic discussions with uh, some of my colleagues, SCAS colleagues. And I would say particularly scholars very far from my own social background. And I really learned and almost regretted perhaps <laughs> that I've been surrounded by an anthropologist by most of my career. Maybe this is also because I'm now retired. Well, now I'm getting engaged in this new research project, but I, at this point, I'm a professor emeritus. So I take more time to listen to colleagues from other disciplines, particularly disciplines far away from my own. And I learned so much. I remember the very first day, September 1st, it must have been at the lunchtime, I sat down with a couple of my, at that time, new colleagues there. And we started to discuss what life is. And there was a chemical geologist, I think, and the other historian. And we just sat there and I realized, boy, I had to rethink all my thoughts about what life, social, social life is, physical life. And how far can you go, you know, when you rethink what life is? is does a stone have life? Is there life out there in outer space? Then later I talked with great scholars uh, studying biosignatures and Big Bang, the Big Bang Theory. I learned so much by listening to scholars from so different backgrounds. And not just, as I told you, the social sciences and humanities, which I normally, this is the people I, I talk with, but from very, very different backgrounds. I learned so much. And the only anthropologist actually around, except for myself, was the principal, Christina Gaston. <laughs> so sometimes 
I would go looking for her just to uh, feel you know, on safe ground and, and having uh, internal discussions about uh, anthropology. But, but I really love the interdisciplinary environment that's Gus. Yeah, so now you got to experience this environment quite late in your career and you just started off with the interdisciplinary project. If you talk to young scholars, what would your advice be? That's a good one. In the old days, you would say, go west, young man. Uh, today, you would say, go interdisciplinary, young woman, or whoever you are. You know, interdisciplinarity is the name of the game, in particular talking about climate change and the challenges the whole planet we're facing. We need to engage in interdisciplinarity. But then that is easy for me to say because I've always worked within my own discipline, uh, not entirely. I've you know, always been curious to see what's going on within other disciplines. But I think it is important to be trained disciplinarily. I've worked eight years at uh, the School of Global Studies in Gothenburg, which is interdisciplinary by nature. All our courses, everything is interdisciplinary there. I would say some of the student works and some of the students, I see them perhaps if you lack the basic methods of a discipline or, or two, it can be several, but if, you, if you're not trained to, to think this in, in disciplinary terms, in, and here I'm referring to the very methodology of, of thinking systematically, how do you conduct research within a certain tradition of methods and, and approaches. If you just educated in, in a school of like School of Global Studies where you can pick anything, anything is good, anything goes, and you can mix anything, then you never really get an, an idea of what it means to be disciplinary. And disciplinary doesn't mean to me to be locked in, to be fenced into a certain discipline, but it's, it's more a training of being disciplined as such. This, and discipline here is not negative. It can sound very like, you know, in the military, you need discipline. But discipline to me is the basic stuff of science. Uh, you have to think systematically how you approach a topic. And there you need to be disciplined. And then you can dis be disciplined in any discipline, I think. And then you can change disciplines. But there's a practice, there's a learning process of being disciplined that I think can easily get lost if you start out by being interdisciplinary from, you know, first semester. I'm glad that I've been trained disciplinarily in those terms. But I think you have to get out of that safe place as soon as possible once you have been trained properly and then engage, engage, engage with other disciplines. So you got to walk on two feet there. And I think a lot of people agree with you there that you have to be become an expert in something first and then you can spread out your wings and look for other experts to, to join together. And then you can fly. Exactly. That's beautiful. Is there anything you would like to add about your own research? Well, I thought this was the end of my uh, career. It's only last month that we got the notice of this new research project, and I'm still thrilled. I feel like a child, <laughs> like a reborn child, you know, that I got a second chance, a third or fourth chance to uh, get back to research, and it's for six years. So uh, I hope this will keep me going for a long time, and I'm I'm very grateful that I had my year at SCAS that kept me, you know, going. And now I'm grateful to the Swedish uh, Research Council that provided with this opportunity, even at old age of mine, that and invite me to still be in business. So uh, research makes you feel, you know, as a child. It's like playing with toys. 
you get enthusiastic, you're alive. I'm very excited. Thank you very much for talking to me on this podcast and to our listeners, of course. It was lovely to have you here and talk to you about your research. And thank you to, to you, Natalie, for being so kind and inviting me here and to organizing this interview. And thank you to Bjarne, sitting in the background. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You have heard Karsten Peregard, Professor Emeritus of Social Anthropology at the University of Gothenburg and fellow here at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study in the academic year of 2020-2021. The documentary, which features the work of Karsten Peregard in the Andes, is called Fire and Ice on the Mountain and was produced by Bill Gentile. It is available on YouTube. This was the first episode in our theme Latin America which is one of our four themes for the spring term of 2022. The other topics for this term include gender, genetics and evolution, and also developmental issues and human rights. The list of podcast episodes and themes is growing. Previous topics include the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures in Asia, citizen and state relations. The variety of the themes reflects the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS with fellows from many different disciplines. If you are interested in interdisciplinary research, you might also want to listen to the two episodes of SCAS Talks Spotlight, summarizing some of the thoughts and reflections from the workshop Beyond Advanced Studies, Interdisciplinary Theory and Research Careers. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Karsten Perigord once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now. Bye.